السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمد عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respect to listeners Recently we completed the famous hadith of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha in which she speaks of her trial. Last week, this hadith is famously known as the hadith al-ifq, the hadith of the great lie. Having concluded the hadith last week, I commented on the few verses of Surah Al-Nur that were revealed on that occasion. So last week was spent just commenting on those verses. Today, in the final lesson of this hadith, we return to the hadith in general, drawing lessons and morals from it. And with that, we bring an end to this particular hadith. You're all very familiar with the story and its details. So, I will point to certain parts and then speak about the morals and lessons that we can derive therefrom. In the beginning, we learnt that Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, whenever he intended to travel, he would draw lots if he wanted to take any of his wives. Two things here. One, drawing lots is permissible. Although, on the surface, it appears to be a form of gambling in itself. But, since there's no exchange of money, and there's no unreasonable loss or excessive risk suffered by any party, Drawing lots is permissible in Islam and it has been practiced by the prophets والسلام, for various things. And here we have the Prophet وسلم, drawing lots in order to select one of his wives to accompany him on the journey. And he used to do that regularly whenever he would travel. The, so we learn of the permissibility of drawing lots even though apparently it may seem impermissible. Secondly, this shows the justice and the fairness of Rasulullah 
His position was unique in that he was under no obligation to distribute time, etc., evenly amongst his family members. However, he would do so as a personal choice. And even when travelling, when the conditions and restrictions are relaxed even further in that particular aspect, the Prophet still wished to be fair and equitable and to ensure that he wouldn't hurt anyone's feelings and that they would also sense fairness. He would draw lots rather than arbitrarily picking and selecting who he wanted to. And that's what he did on this occasion also. One of the things we learn is when Umm Mu'minin Aisha radiyallahu anha, she says that whenever I would travel, I would be placed in a hodaj, which we know as a hodah, a litter. When she would be placed in this litter, it would be lifted onto the camel and then when the journey would stop, when they would stop, the holder would be lifted off the camel and placed on the ground. And later, as she explains this at the very beginning, because it puts into perspective what happened later, which is that when she strayed away from the camp, in searching for her lost necklace and the Prophet ﷺ had announced that they were to resume their journey and they did so in haste. The people who were appointed to carry her hoda, they didn't even realise that she wasn't in there. And since this happened and then they just lifted up the hoda placed it on the camel and they all resumed their journey. So she, in order to explain what happened later, she at the very beginning of the hadith describes what would be the normal practice whenever she would travel. And this was a case with the other wives also. That a hodah would be prepared, they would seat themselves in the hodah, the hodah would be lifted, placed on a camel, and then the journey would begin as soon as they would halt, the whole holder would be lifted. Remember, it was covered with a canopy and drapes and curtains and then placed on the ground. And then the lifters and the carriers would walk away. In all of this, <coughs> not a word would be exchanged between the wives of the Prophet ﷺ and those whose duty it was to carry the holder. Otherwise, a single word, just as confirmation of her presence, whenever the holder would be lifted up onto the camel, would have been sufficient. But the normal practice was that not a single word would be exchanged between them. That was the extent to which the Sahaba anhum would observe hijab, especially with the wives of the Prophet and this was illustrated later when Safwan ibn Mu'attal arrived late in the camp the next morning 
after she had been left alone. And he was tasked with the duty of being a rear guard and coming across any stragglers, any lost people or lost property, etc. And as he was riding up in the morning, all he saw was the figure of a person sleeping on the ground. So he drew closer, and since she was actually asleep, and therefore unaware of her posture and position at the time, although she had covered herself, she was asleep and unaware. She, Safad ibn Mu'adda, when he drew closer, and he looked from above the camel, or the he recognized her immediately and the way he recognized her she explains that because he would see her as would the others before the laws of hijab were revealed so she got, she actually goes into detail to explain why and how safwan ibn mu'attal and recognized umm al-mu'minin aisha radiyallahu anha and she says it was only because before the laws of hijab were revealed, he, he saw me, he, he had seen me. So as soon as he recognized her, he exclaimed, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. <clears throat> and then he dismounted, made the camel kneel, placed his foot on the forelegs of the camel to ensure that it wouldn't budge or startle. And then Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha climbed on the camel and the camel rose. Safad ibn Mu'attar radiyallahu anha walked in front, pulling the reins, and in that way they resumed the journey. In, although it's not mentioned in this particular narration of Bukhari, in one narration she says, By Allah, not a kalimah, not a word was exchanged between us. So both of these parts of the hadith, illustrate the extent and the care which the Sahaba to which the Sahaba would go to and the care which they would exercise in their dealings with others, especially in relation to hijab and specifically in relation to Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha, sorry, the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen, the mothers of the believers. I'm just quickly going through the hadith to see what else we can look at. One more thing, as I said, when Safan ibn al-Mu'attal he saw her, to him this was a very serious matter. The wife of the Prophet وسلم, sleeping on the ground. And in shock, he exclaimed something. What was his exclamation? Later, also, when Umm al Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha was walking with her grandmother's sister, the mother of Mistah radiallahu anha. 
and she tripped and she rebuked her son in her abs- in his absence and said da'isa mistah wobian to mistah her son and she said it thrice Aisha, although it's not mentioned in this narration that she said it thrice, it's in other narrations. Ummu'minin Aisha radiyallahu anha told her that why do you abuse your son in that manner? In any case, she told she eventually told Ummu'minin Aisha radiyallahu anha why she said what she said. And then later, when she then visited her, that's when she first came to know of what people were saying about her. Then when she went to visit her mother, and she wanted to confirm this with her mother, she, she told her mother that, what are people saying about me? Her mother tried to hide it from her as much as possible. And again, she referred to it, but without explicitly mentioning it. And then she had, when she eventually realized, Umm Mu'minin Aisha radiyallahu anha, that what people were saying about her, what was her exclamation? Upon confirmation of this news, what was her exclamation? Her exclamation was, Subhanallah, يتحدثون الناس بهذا. Subhanallah, do people speak of this? The one thing I'd like to point out here is the purity of their language and vocabulary. Even under immense pressure, even in shock, even in pain and anguish, Further, when the Prophet ﷺ came to visit her, how does Umm Mu'mineen Aisha anha describe the scene? She says, a young girl from the Ansar came, a young lady from the Ansar came and sat by me and began weeping with me. Then she, laid, she was lying down, her father and mother were present, and the Prophet ﷺ entered the house after Asr. After Asr Salah. He entered, and when he saw her lying on the bed, he asked, what's wrong with her? What is it with her? So her mother spoke up saying that she is suffering from severe fever. So the Prophet ﷺ said, perhaps it's the result of the rumors circulating about her. So the mother said yes. So when Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and heard him have this conversation, she sat up. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sat down in front of her, squarely before her. To her right and side was her father Abu Bakr and to her left and side her mother Umm Ayman, Umm Ruman radiyallahu anhuma. And then the Prophet ﷺ spoke. This was his first conversation with her on this topic. How did he begin? Jealous, 
فحمد الله وأثنى عليه ثم قال أما بعد يا عائشة فإنه قد بلغني عنك كذا وكذا فحمد الله وأثنى عليه and then he recited the khutbah tashahud which as I explained then refers to the praise of Allah and his glorification so he sat down and he praised Allah and glorified him, hymned his praise, and then he said whatever he needed to say. So here we have the example of the Prophet ﷺ speaking in his pain and anguish. We have the example of Umm Mu'mineen Aisha anha being shocked with the news of people gossiping about her in the worst manner possible. We have the startling surprise of Safan ibn al when he comes across the sleeping figure and to his shock and horror realizes that alone in the middle of the desert, in such danger, it's none other than Umm al-Mu'mineen, Aisha radiyallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet And yet in all of these instances of shock, of pain, of sorrow, of anger, of startled surprise. All of them take the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Safan ibn Mu'attal radiyallahu anhu sees her. His, first ex- his, ex- his only exclamation is, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, his confirmation of the rumors being circulated about her from her own mother, and when she realizes how serious and true this is, her exclamation is, Subhanallah, Ayyad Subhanallah, do people really speak of this? And the Prophet ﷺ, when he sat in front of his wife, imagine, he sits down to ask his wife whether she has been unfaithful to him or not. Probably the most difficult conversation a man can have with his wife. Any couple can have. He is explicitly and directly asking her whether she has been unfaithful and disloyal to him, whether she has betrayed him. And look at his choice of words and look at how he begins. There is no rage there is no severe anger. There is no defeatism either. He is not a broken man, far from it. Most people, they would sway between two extremes of violent, uncontrollable rage or absolute defeatism. <coughs> but the balance of Rasulullah is such but even on that occasion, he does not say anything explicitly, but he merely references it and couches it in tolerable language. And even before he poses the question, he praises Allah, hymns his praise, takes his name and glorifies him. Even on that occasion, he takes the name of Allah. And then he says, Ya Aisha, O Aisha, Indeed, something has reached me. No, such and such has reached me about you. 
فإن كنت بريئة فسيبرئك الله وإن كنت ألممت بذنب فاستغفر الله وتوبي إليه فإن العبد إذا ثاب إلى الله تاب الله عليه Oh Aisha, if you have, such and such has reached me of you. Again, he doesn't say anything directly. If you are innocent, Allah will declare you to be innocent. But if you are guilty, not if you are guilty, وَإِن كُنْتِ أَلْمَنْتِ If you have, out of character and not as habit, committed a sin, Then imagine he is a husband. In a way, he is the victim. And yet, he says, if you have committed this sin, what does he say? I will do this, this will happen, that will happen. Seek Allah's forgiveness and repent unto him. For indeed, when a servant repents unto Allah, Allah turns to them and relents in accepting their repentance. So the point I wish to make is look at the purity of their language, the purity of their vocabulary. Even in pain and anguish, when a person normally loses control of not just their emotions, but even their actions, their deeds, and especially their language and vocabulary and their tongue, they were always composed and by their very habit and character were always predisposed to taking the name of Allah first. And this is what we should do. We should learn, even in shock, to take the name of Allah. Even in surprise, to take the name of Allah. Rather than using vulgarity. If we are surprised about something, whether good or shocking, subhanallah, alhamdulillah. And if it's something very serious, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi This is another lesson. Even in the most pressing of circumstances, look at the purity of their tongue and their language. And this reflects what I mentioned last week. وَالطَّيِّبَاتُ لِلطَّيِّبِينَ وَالطَّيِّبُونَ لِلطَّيِّبَاتِ That pure words are for pure people, and pure people are for pure words. A person's language and vocabulary and their exclamations reflect their interior. <coughs> In a hadith, Prophet ﷺ says, When you see a person frequenting the masjid, فَشَهَدُوا لَهُ بِالْإِيمَانِ Then testify to his faith. If you see a person frequenting the masjid, visiting the masjid regularly, and praying punctually, فَشَهَدُوا لَهُ بِالْإِيمَانِ Then testify to his faith, his good faith. A person's regular actions in that manner point to something good in them. So similarly, when a person always speaks well, and remember, it's very easy to put up a show to maintain a facade on other occasions, but when a person is faced by pressing circumstances that jolt them and shock them 
and shake them out of their normal behavior and maybe reveal the true inner self and their true character, such as in anguish and pain and shock. If a person even then is pure of speech and pure of language, then indeed that shows an inner purity. And language means a lot. In Surah Al-Ahzab, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu attaqullaha wa qoolu qawlin sadeeda yuslih lakum a'malakum wa yaghfir lakum dhunubakum ila akhir al-ayah. Allah says, O believers, be conscious of Allah. Wa qoolu qawlin sadeeda and say a straight, upright word. I make your speech good. Make it upright, make it straight, not bent. What will Allah give you in return of you refining and purifying and making good your speech? Allah says, يُسْلِحْ لَكُمْ أَعْمَالَكُمْ He will make good your deeds. If your speech is good, Allah will ensure that you commit, you perform good deeds. If your speech is pure, Allah will ensure that your deeds are pure. So speech has a great effect. In a hadith related by Imam Tirmidhi and others, Prophet says, each morning the organs and limbs of a person plead with his tongue and say, the limbs actually address the tongue and say to the tongue, O tongue, fear Allah in us. Fear Allah in relation to us. Because, O tongue, we are as you are. We are only as you are. So if you are straight, we are straight. And if you are bent, we are bent. That's the meaning of the verse. Say an upright word, Allah will make good your deeds. If you ensure that your speech is straight, Allah will make your deeds straight. If your speech is pure, your deeds will be pure. But if your speech is corrupt, your deeds will be corrupt. And that's what the organs say to the tongue every morning. That fear Allah in relation to us. For we are only as you are. If you are straight, O tongue, we, the rest of the limbs of the body, we are straight. And if you are bent, we are bent. So... Look at the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, look at the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, the mothers of the believers, look at the Prophet even in the most painful and desperate of circumstances, even in the most testing of circumstances, in shock, in pain and in anguish, in severe distress, their speech was pure, and not just pure, but they always began with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's another great lesson for us. One more thing. Here, when she was out with her grandmother's sister, and she was totally unaware. Remember, the rumours had begun on the return journey, and she was present in that journey. People returned to Medina. Almost a whole month had passed. She was ill. 
Yet in her innocence, she detected nothing. The most she, the most that concerned her, was a perceptible reduction in the Prophet sallallahu affection towards her. That's what concerned her. But she was ill. She couldn't pinpoint the cause. And she was ill herself. So this did concern her, but not overly so. Umm Mistah, the grand, her grandmother's sister, when she slightly recovered from her illness and she went out to relieve herself in the manner that women would do in those days, go in groups from evening to evening and go at a distance, to a distance from the house. And Umm Mistah, radiyallahu anha, tripped and then she expressed her anger at her son. And Aisha radiyallahu anha told her, why do you abuse your son in that manner when he is a veteran of, the, of Badr? So she kept it from her. But it happened thrice and when she persisted, eventually she explained that although it wasn't mentioned in this particular narration, is to be found in other narrations of this hadith. She said, I'm only abusing him because of you. I'm only abusing him because of you. What this means, what this shows, is, subhanAllah, she was the mother of Mistah. Yet, when Mistah had wronged Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, her mother was the first to recognize his error. And she defended someone else and took her side and stood up for her, even against her own son. And she expressed her anger and displeasure at her own son, rebuking him and abusing him because of the wrong that he had done. Justice. This was their sense of justice. They acted on the teachings of the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amunu kunu qawwameena bilqist shuhada'a lillah walaw ala anfusikum awil walidayni wal aqrabeen O believers, be establishers and upholders of justice, witnesses for the sake of Allah, even though this testimony may be against yourselves, or your own parents, or your relatives. I.e., if you have to accept, be just. Never be unjust. Be just. If you have to accept in that justice, that you are wrong, accept that you are wrong. If you have to accept that your parents are wrong, accept that your parents are wrong. If you have to accept that your relatives and close loved ones are wrong, then do so. That is an obligation on you. And this is exactly how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were. Umm Mistah radiallahu anha did not defend her son. Protecting him, defending him, standing up for him, or concealing his fault, merely because he was her son. 
And she said to Aisha radiallahu anha, I am only abusing him because of you. He has spoken about you in this manner. And this is why I am rebuking him and abusing him. Subhanallah. This sense of fairness and justice that she rallied against her own son in defense of someone else. Simply because she, she was the first to recognize how wrong and sinful her son was. Again, the sense of justice. Allahu Akbar. Another thing. Umm Mistah radiallahu anha was the first one to inform her. And it was only because she exclaimed, Da'isa Mistah, may Mistah perish. And she did it three times and then Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha persisted so she eventually told her. But until that moment, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha was totally unaware and almost a month had passed, or approximately a month. According to some reports, that this whole episode was even longer than a month. But let's say, on average, a month. So a month had passed, and Aisha radiallahu anha had no inkling of what was going on. <coughs> Two things to learn about this. One, How innocent Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha was. And despite being the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, how aloof she remained from chit-chats and gossip. For a whole month, she, she never discovered what people were saying about her. And the second lesson we learn is, and this is how a person should be, concerning themselves with themselves. Not dabbling in everybody else's business. And this is all related to su'udhan, meaning suspicion, entertaining ill thoughts. Searching for faults, gossiping, investigating. All of these are related. The moment a person begins taking an interest in everybody else's affairs, then the soul does not rest until he or she develops thoughts and imagines things about other people. The seed of doubt that is planted in the mind of a person, that seed germinates and then grows and flourishes. So what begins, there was nothing there, then a seed of doubt was planted. We actually nurture water and cultivate that seed of doubt through our 
investigations, our questions, our research, our pursuits of these things. And then, what was non-existent becomes a single seed of doubt. A seed of doubt grows and flourishes and thrives and becomes a whole tree. And not just of doubt, now of suspicion and even of truth. This is why the Prophet ﷺ says in a very beautiful hadith related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, Beware of suspicion. Because suspicion is a greatest lie. Cut it from the root. The mind works overtime. And if you let a thought dwell, it won't go away by itself. It won't stop. You have to actively change the direction of thinking. I mentioned a few months ago that I read a remarkable, well, I was reading a book, and it was to do with the brain and neurology. And one of the things they've discovered recently is, I didn't go into detail, I just said that if the occasion arises, I'll explain it. So maybe I'll explain a bit of it now. That using brain scanning and... using the latest research in neurology. What they've discovered, and these are psychologists and neuroscientists, is a method whereby, for the first, this is a claim of, the, of these particular scientists, that for the first time ever in history, to their knowledge, They've used cognitive behaviour therapy to actually alter the physical characteristics of the brain. And one of the examples they used is suspicion. That when a person doubts something, they were mainly speaking of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And the very foundation of OCD is suspicion and doubt. Did I close the door? Yes or no. Did that happen? Yes or no. Did I leave the window open? Yes or no. Did I wash my hand? Did I wash my hands? Sometimes people wash their hands nine, ten times, yet they go away and they think, did I wash my hands or not? It's an illness, but the, f- the very basis and foundation of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is suspicion and doubt. So they said we used this CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy, to tackle the issue of 
well, to tackle OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And because the very foundation of obsessive compulsive disorder is doubt and suspicion, how do we overcome that? And then it's a very lengthy procedure, very lengthy scientific explanation, but a crude summary would be something along the lines of the brain gets stuck in gear. Some people, for either chemical, biological reasons or nature, or possibly even nurture and environment and trained thinking, over time they begin to focus and ruminate only on certain things. And what happens is it becomes a habit. So it's like being stuck in a gear. You don't shift from one gear to the other. And as long as you're stuck in that gear, you remain at that same speed, your brain is working over time, overheating, grinding, but you're never progressing because you don't shift or change, shift up one gear. So you remain stuck in gear. And the only way, and it's a very detailed explanation of how there are certain parts of the brain which work in conjunction but one after the other. So only when A does its task can B begin to function. And only when B finish, com- fulfill, completes its task will C take over. But in, in this state, in OCD, when, you have, when a person has doubt and suspicion, people get stuck only in that first stage A. They're just forever going in circles in stage A. They need to shift gear and move into B. And they say, how do we do that? And subhanAllah, after such, a, after such a lengthy discussion, they say, the truth is, nobody can do it for you. You have to cut the root of suspicion. You have to force yourself. You have to force yourself to engage in some other activity, which actively diverts your brain and your thinking from this doubt and suspicion to something else. Otherwise, you will live in hell and torment. And that's just for OCD when a person is suffering doubt and suspicion about oneself. But it's the same rule. If a person is always thinking and ruminating and having doubts and suspicion about someone else or other people, the same rule applies. As long as you dwell on it, your, your brain will work Over time, it will overheat, and you will be stuck in that one single cycle. And the only way you can move to the second stage is by forcing yourself. You have to actually compel yourself. This is where the CBT, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, comes in, where what you need to do is force yourself to think about something else and to engage in alternative activity. Once you engage in alternative activity, the brain is like this. The brain does not work by itself. The brain is a machine. It works as you make it work. If you tell the brain to think about stars, it'll think about stars. If you then, the very next minute, tell the brain to think about football, it'll think about football. And the very next minute, if you tell the brain to think about sand, it'll think about sand. The brain doesn't care what it's thinking about. And it can jump from one thing to another. But if you leave it to itself, it'll take a life of its own. 
You'll just continue to make its own connections. And therefore, what you need to do is step in <coughs> willfully and consciously. You divert the brain's thinking. You decide what you want to think about. If you're thinking about something wrong, you can make the brain stop. That's your choice, and it's your responsibility. Anyway, what I was marvelling at when I was reading this very... It's a whole book just on this topic. When I was reading about it, subhanAllah, all of this, wallahi, is covered in three words of the Qur'an. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اجْتَنِبُوا كَثِيرًا مِّنَ الظَّنِّ إِنَّ بَعْضَ الظَّنِّ إِثْمٍ وَلَا تَجَسَّسُوا وَلَا يَغْتَبْ بَعْضُكُمْ بَعْضًا In just a few words. Again, as part of that, what happens when your brain is stuck in that one gear thinking about the same thing over and over again? It feeds on itself. These thoughts become more entrenched, more vitalized, more energized, stronger. They then lead to other things which are related, which is, once you have these doubts, your brain then compels you to take action. Because thoughts don't just remain in the, in the brain forever. These thoughts eventually compel you to action. This is why obsessive-compulsive behavior, these thoughts are just the first part. These are the obsessions. The compulsions is what these obsessions make you do. So the obsession is, for instance, that, did I lock the door? That's just an obsession. These are just obsessive thoughts. The brain, you ha it hasn't made you do anything yet. But once you go back to check the door, that's compulsive behavior, which is a result of those obsessions. So thoughts don't exist in a vacuum. Eventually, thoughts will compel you towards a certain action. So what they say is, before these obsessive thoughts compel you to taking compulsive action, you need to cut off the thoughts. Exactly. Allah says, Ya O believers, abstain. Excessively abstain from suspicion or from speculation. For in for indeed, some speculation is a sin. And then immediately, what does Allah mention? And do not search for faults. And then immediately thereafter, And do not backbite each other. How are they all connected, subhanAllah? Once you are suspicious, and you entertain these doubts and suspicions. You allow them to fester and grow. Your soul will not rest. Your brain will not rest. It will compel you into action. And the first action is, the brain can be deceiving, and Iblis is dangerously deceptive. Our nafs and shaitan make us believe that we're actually doing something good, which is, we're acting on the verse of the Qur'an, where Allah says, Ascertain the truth, verify the facts. So we think we're actually doing something good. Oh, I'm suspicious and doubtful. I have these thoughts. So let me actually verify them. Or not verify them, let me verify the facts. Let me ascertain the truth. Let me see if there is any truth in this. So a person begins to investigate and search for faults. 
What happens when a person searches for faults? They do so, not innocently, they do so not impartially or objectively. They do so with preconceived ideas. They do so with prejudice, though they may not recognise it. So, when there are so many variables and possibilities, their brain will always latch on to those things that only confirm their initial doubts and suspicions. That's what the justice does. And once a person's fears and doubts and suspicions are confirmed, what do they do? Subhanallah. Again, their soul will not rest. They now believe it. They now feel that they have an obligation to share this newfound belief with the rest of the world. So, وَلَا تَجَسَّسُوا Do not investigate and search for faults. What's the next step? وَلَا يَغْتَبْ بَعْضُكُمْ بَعْضًا And do not backbite each other. Because this is the inevitable conclusion. So what does a person do? Once they have these suspicions and doubts, these thoughts don't just remain, they compel you to action. So the next action is, you've done your searches, you've done your investigations, you've done your research, and you feel vindicated and justified in your suspicions and doubts. So what do you do? Your soul will not let you rest. The next step is, you backbite, you share this with others. And if you share it with others, our argument is, well, what's wrong in sharing it with others? It's the truth, isn't it? Imam Abu Dawud and Imam Tirmidhi alayhim, are both relate a hadith in which Prophet in which Abu Hurairah anhu says, It was said, O Messenger of Allah, what is backbiting? Your what is ghiba? What is backbiting? So the Prophet said, You're mentioning something about your brother which he dislikes. That's the definition of ghiba. That's the definition of backbiting. You're mentioning something of your brother which he dislikes. So someone said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, in if what I am saying about my brother is truly in him, then so the Prophet said. إِنْ كَانَ فِيهِ مَا تَقُولُ فَقَدْ اِغْتَبْتَهُ وَإِنْ لَمْ يَكُنْ فِيهِ مَا تَقُولُ فَقَدْ بَهَتَّهُ If what you are saying of him is truly in him, then you have backbited him. But if what you are saying is not in him, then you have falsely accused him. One way or the other, you are in sin. So when we feel the need to share it with others and we believe that, oh, everybody needs to know because it's true. Well, if it's true, it's backbiting. And if it's not true, then it's even worse. So, Allahu Akbar, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, instead of getting to backbiting, don't get to the justice, searching for one another's faults. And the way to avoid getting to the justice is to stop entertaining doubt and suspicion. And how do we entertain doubt and suspicion? It's very simple. It's as simple and as difficult as forcing yourself to 
divert your attention and to think of something else. In any case, going back to what I was saying earlier, all of this is connected. This whole suspicion, doubt, gossip, rumour-mongering. And what does it go back to, what I was saying about Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, which is, for one whole month, she remained in Medina, and yet she still never discovered what people were saying about her, because she concerned herself with herself. Prophet sallallahu says, Parts of a person's good Islam and good faith is that they abandon, they shun that which does not concern them. To dabble in everybody else's affairs, to poke our nose in everybody else's affairs, to doubt, to be suspicious, to research, to search, to investigate. Allahu Akbar. We should be concerned with ourselves. Uqbat ibn Amir radiyallahu said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Man najah? He said, O Messenger of Allah, what is salvation? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to him, Amsik alayka lisanak, wal yasa'ka baytuk wabki ala khati'atik. That withhold your tongue, let your home confine you and weep over your sins. That is salvation. Withhold your tongue. Let your home confine you and weep over your sins. SubhanAllah. All three speak about the same thing. Withhold your tongue. Worry about yourself. Weep over your sins. And don't venture too often beyond the confines of your home. Therein lies salvation. Otherwise, if you dabble in everybody else's affairs, subhanAllah, what will become of you? So Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha for a whole month was totally unaware. One more thing, I said there were two lessons to learn from that. One was this. The second lesson is, again, namima. Namima is to carry tales. And in many hadith, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam has said that a namam, a tale carrier, one who gossips, one who is guilty of namima will not enter Jannah. And part of namima, part of gossiping and carrying tales, is not just to other people, but also back to the person himself or herself that it concerns. And this is something we should avoid. But unfortunately, which isn't avoided, in which we, we, we actually think we're doing something good. Whereas in reality, it's part of namima, which is, to give the direct example of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, everybody else knew, her mother knew, her father knew, her family members knew, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam knew. Others found out in fact, the rumours were circulating, but not one person before her grandmother's sister for a whole month ever came up to her and said to her, do you know what people are saying about you? Oh, I heard this. I heard this. This is part of Namima. What good does it do? Apart from adding insult and pain upon pain, 
adding salt to the wound, apart from causing immense grief, what else does this achieve? This is actually part of Namima. This is something we should avoid. If we hear something about someone, do something about it. Help them. Defend their honour. Assist them. Aid them. Give them relief. Provide solace and comfort to them. If you can't do any of that, at least remain silent. But what good does it do to go back to the same person and hurt them by telling them, oh, this is what people say, are saying about you. This is what I've heard. And this leads me to something else. Before I'll, I'll come back to this. People often say, well, there must be some truth to it. There must be some truth to it. Famous adage, there's no smoke without fire. There must be something there. Never. لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. What truth was there in this whole episode in relation to Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha and Safan ibn Mu'attal radiyallahu anha? What truth was there? And if someone says, well, there was an element and a kernel of truth, which is that he, Safan ibn Mu'attal and Aisha radiyallahu anhuma were both in khalwa, in solitude, and they both entered the camp in solitude. And they were together for a part of the journey, alone and in solitude. So there is that kernel of truth. The counter-argument would be, subhanAllah, yes, that happened. And what? Your imagination, your filthy imagination, your filthy, evil, unworthy speculation of what may have happened is not a reflection of pure Aisha and pure Safan ibn Mu'attal radiyallahu an, it's a reflection of your corrupt thoughts, your corrupt character, and your filthy imagination. Al-Khabithatu lil-Khabithin, wal-Khabithun lil-Khabithat. Impure words are for impure people, and impure people are for impure words. Pure words are for pure people, and pure, word, pure people are for pure words. For those of you who weren't here last week, I'll just quickly explain that this, these ver- this verse of Surah An-Nur in which Allah says, pure for pure, pure for pure, um, indeed, most often uh, what they are taken to mean is <coughs> that pure women are for pure men, and pure men are for pure women, and impure women are for pure, impure men, and impure men are for impure women. That is true, without doubt, that is true. And that is also a secondary meaning of that verse. But, according to many scholars, including Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas, anhuma, the famous exegete of the Holy Qur'an from the companions, and many of his students and other students of the Sahaba, like Ata ibn Abi Rabah, Sa'id ibn Jubayr, Imam al-Hassan al-Basri, and many others, these great scholars from Tabi'een, all of them, including some of the companions, they would actually explain these words not to mean impure women are for impure men and vice versa, and pure men are for pure women and vice versa. No. They would say impure in the feminine sense, and the gender here, 
is referring not to women, ladies, but rather to words. So impure words are for impure men. And impure men are for impure words. And pure words are for pure men and pure men. Or not men, pure people. And pure people are for pure words. And what this means is, these allegations, these filthy rumours, these suggestions, these accusations, this calumny, these filthy words are more a reflection of the ones who have uttered them rather than the victims of their allegations. So, this idea that there's no smoke without fire, that's not true. We are creating the smoke. We are creating the fog that is clouding our thoughts. And then we ignite the fire. There's nothing there. Furthermore, another argument which people often posit is, oh, if the person wasn't like this, it wouldn't be said about. Who could have been purer than Safan ibn Mu'attal of whom the Prophet said on the mimbar, وَقَدْ ذَكَرُوا رَجُلًا صَالِحًا وَاللَّهِ مَا عَلِمْتُ عَلَيْهِ إِلَّا خَيْرًا Imagine the Messenger of Allah testifying from the mimbar, from on top of the mimbar, that they have mentioned a pious man, رَجُلًا صَالِحًا By Allah, I have never known any ill about him. I have known nothing but good of him. So the Prophet ﷺ testified to his piety. And who could have been purer than Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, whose purity Allah attested to from above the seven heavens in the Holy Qur'an. And yet, and who could have been purer than Sayyidina Yusuf alayhi salam? When, if you regard the story of, the, of Prophet Yusuf alayhi salam, what was he actually accused of? What was he accused of? I'm loath to mention it, but what was he accused of? Surah Yusuf is not a story of romance. It's not a romantic tale. It's a story of trial and tribulation, of tears and torment. The Prophet Yusuf wasn't simply accused of spurning the advances of an amorous lady. Sayyidina Yusuf was accused of attempted rape. That was the accusation against the Prophet Yusuf. <coughs> And Allah testified to his purity. And yet that was the allegation leveled against him. So allegations are allegations. And accusations and allegations do not say anything about their victims. They say more about the, those who spout these allegations. So we have to rid ourselves of this idea that there is no smoke without fire. And... There must be something for such allegations to be leveled against them. Then what argument could you use against the Prophet Yusuf alayhi salam? Against 
Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha against Safan ibn Mu'attal radiyallahu anha whose piety was testified to by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So people will say things about everybody. People will say things. No one is spared. A poet in Arabic mentioned a beautiful poem in which he says that I do not care if people abuse me or criticize me. If they have not spared Allah and his messenger, then who am I? If people have not spared Allah and his messenger, then who am I? So, no matter what allegations are being leveled, no matter what accusations are being made, we need to think in the manner that Allah and his messenger have taught us, which is, we do not entertain anything. Unless there is proof to the contrary. And even if there is proof, even if there is proof, what does it concern us? So in the case of Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, here is the husband, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, saying to her, if you have committed a sin, then, فَاسْتَغْفِرِ wa tubi ilayhi. Seek Allah's forgiveness and repentance to him. For whenever, never does a servant repent unto Allah, except that Allah relents and turns to them in accepting their repentance. That's the most he said. He didn't say any more. We are only allowed to investigate and to search for the truth and to verify the facts, if it's directly related to us. And the meaning of directly related to us is that we have to make a decision because of our jurisdiction and our authority and our responsibility in relation to that person. So in the case of, in in a similar case, who would be the people normally involved? Exactly as happened here. The Prophet wasallam, the husband, the father, and the mother. No one else. These are the people who are involved. These are the people who have to make a decision. These are the people that such a thing concerns. It doesn't matter if other people are concerned about it. Not everything that people are concerned about concerns them. And not everything that people are interested in is in their interest. So it doesn't matter whether people are interested in it or concerned about it. If it doesn't concern them, the teaching of the Qur'an for such people is not that, oh, verify the facts, ascertain the truth. No. The teaching is... What Allah mentions, which I explained in Surah An-Nur. لَوْلَا إِذْ سَمِعْتُمُوهُ ذَنَّ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتُ بِأَنفُسِهِمْ خَيْرًا وَقَالُوا هَذَا إِفْكُمْ مُبِينَ Why wasn't it that when you heard this, believing men and believing women thought good of themselves and say, this is a clear lie. Dismiss and say it's a clear lie. And then later, وَلَوْلَا إِذْ سَمِعْتُمُوهُ 
قلت ما يكون لنا أن نتكلم بهذا سبحانك هذا بهتان عظيم Why wasn't it that when you heard this You said it is not even lawful for us to speak of this May you be glorified O oh Allah This is a great allegation and calumny So it's not even permissible to speak of it The only people for whom it's permissible to speak of, to investigate, to research, to ascertain and verify are those that this matter concerns directly. Everyone else, it does not concern Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab once heard some singing, some girls singing and the significance of singing girl a girl singing is that in the olden days uh, the, they wouldn't have en- the entertainment would be live entertainment in their presence so they would normally hire singing dancing girls so Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab heard some singing and he heard the clinking of glasses so Sayyidina Umar anhu patrolled the streets of Medina. So when he heard this, in order to verify and catch the person red-handed, Sayyidina Umar anhu went behind and scaled the, scaled the rear wall and jumped in the courtyard of the house. And he drew his rod and said to the person, Have you no shame? Do I find you in this state? And the person had a glass of wine in his hand. Goblet. He said, Oh, Amirul Mu'mineen. I have committed one wrong, and you have committed three wrongs. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu said, how is that? So he said, Allah says in the Holy Qur'an, do not enter homes without permission. You entered my house without permission. Allah says in the Holy Qur'an, do not enter the homes from the rear, but enter the homes from their front doors. And you entered from the rear. Allah says, do not investigate and search for faults. And you jumped in and you investigating me in this manner. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, he didn't become angry. It's said of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, kana waqafan inda kitabillah. And the meaning of waqaf inda kitabillah is this. He would come to an abrupt halt before the book of Allah. No matter how, he was very, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu was a man of great passion. But whenever anyone recited the Qur'an in front of him, he would, he would calm down immediately. Once a Bedouin, he came to Medina to visit his nephew. And he said, take me to Umar ibn al-Khattab. So he took him. And his nephew was someone who used to sit with Sayyidina Umar radiallahu So he took him the next morning. He was a Bedouin. 
unrefined manner of speaking. I'm just summarising the story. So when he visited him the next morning and he granted him audience, the first thing he said to him was, Heh, ya ibn al-Khattab, you don't give us of your wealth. Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu lunged at him. He didn't catch him. So the nephew said, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, Allah says, Khud al-Afu wa'amur bil-Urf wa'arid anil jahileen, that adopt the path of overlooking and forgiving and excusing and enjoying the good and ignore the ignorance. So he said, Allah says that, الجاهلين, and this uncle of mine, he's one of the ignorant. <laughs> so Sayyidina Umar immediately his anger subsided. So he was kind of waqafan in the kitabullah, he would come to an abrupt halt before the book of Allah. So when this man said this to him, that Allah says this and you did this, Allah says this and you did this, Allah says this and you did this, he did not become angry. He acknowledged his faults and he said to him, make me a promise and I will make you a promise. Promise me that you will not return to this behavior and I promise you that I will not return to this behavior. The point I was making is investigating and searching for faults. SubhanAllah, he was Amir al-Mu'mineen. He was a leader of the faithful. But what that person told him is that it still wasn't befitting you to come into my home and search for my faults in that manner. And in a hadith later by Dirmidhi and others, Prophet once ascended the member and said, Ya ma'ashara man amana bilisani, walamma yadkhul al-imanu qalbah. لَا تَغْتَابُ الْمُسْلِمِينَ وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا عَوْرَاتِهِمْ فَإِنَّ مَنْ تَتَبَّعَ عَوْرَاتِهِمْ تَتَبَّعَ اللَّهُ عَوْرَتَهُ وَمَنْ تَتَبَّعَ اللَّهُ عَوْرَتَهُ يَفْضَحُ وَلَوْ فِي جَوْفِ رَحْلِهِ Prophet said, ascending the minbar, and he spoke with such passion and anger that the Sahabi says, the Prophet spoke so loudly that even those ladies who were in their homes away from the masjid heard the Messenger's message. And what was his message on that day? He said, Ya ma'ashara man amana bilisani walamma yadkhul al-imanu qalba. O assembly of those who have believed with their tongues, but iman has not yet entered their hearts. Do not backbite the Muslims and do not search for their faults. For whoever searches for the faults of the Muslims, Allah will search for his fault. See the difference. Whoever searches for the faults of Muslims, Allah will search for his fault, singular. And whoever's fault Allah searches for, Allah will disgrace him even in the center and the midst of his own home. <coughs> so as you do will be done unto you. Do not search for faults. Do not investigate in that manner. Concern yourself with yourself. Going back to Aisha, no one came and told her, and she didn't concern herself with anyone else. Biggest thing is Namima, nobody came and told her. And that's what we should do. We should avoid hurting people. If we can do something about it, do something about it. If we can't, let us hold our peace. Rather than aggrieving and hurting, 
the very person who is already the victim of such vicious rumours. And we often think, and remember I was explaining that, we say there's no smoke without fire, and maybe the person, uh, they, they have done something, or uh, nobody would be saying this if it wasn't true. That's, a, that's the nature of rumours, they just catch on. They take on a life of their own. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, cut them from the roots. And amazing, just uh, yesterday I was driving and heard, the, heard a program on Radio 4 just for a few minutes. And they were talking about chaos theory and theories of complexity. And part of it was actually, funnily enough, the one part that I heard later on was only to do with this. And it was to do with rumours. How rumours begin, circulate, and become entrenched in a community. What they were saying, and you can go back and listen, Radio 4, I think it was a Melvin Bragg show. The A initiates a rumour. B hears it. Repeats it to C. C hears it, repeats it to D. And it goes through five people. And once it begins circulating, the same rumour that A started comes back to A. And when he hears it, funnily enough, even though he knows, or he or she knows that they were the ones who actually invented, instigated the rumour and fabricated it, when they hear it from another source, they feel vindicated and believe themselves that it was true. It's all to do with some complex chaos theory. But this is how rumours circulate in a community. SubhanAllah. Allah says, cut it all from the root. Do not entertain suspicion. Do not entertain doubt. Do not research. Do not search for each other's faults. Do not investigate. Otherwise it would lead to backbiting and slander. There's a lot more to say, but I will end today. Finally, the end of the hadith speaks about again. I don't. I can't go in order because there's so much to look at. But just one more thing. Well, one, two more things. Look at Zainab bin Tujahsh radiyallahu anha. Umm Muminin Aisha radiyallahu anha says that she she was her rival amongst the wives. And yet when the Prophet ﷺ questioned her about Aisha radiallahu anha, what did she say? She said, Ahmi sum'i wa basari, ya Rasulullah. Ya Rasulullah, ahmi sum'i wa basari. Wallahi ma'alimtu alayha illa khayra. Prophet ﷺ said, Ya Zainab, ra'ayti, ma'da ra'ayti, ma'da ra'ayti, what have you seen? What do you know of Aisha? He was, he was seeking any information. It would have been easy for Zainab bint Jahsh radiallahu anha to slip in a word. One word. Or maybe even to feign ignorance. And that would have done untold damage. Yet Zain, and she was her rival. We've heard many stories of her rivalry with Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. They would quarrel. They quarreled and verbally had verbal contests in front of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Yet despite this rivalry, 
for the love and affection of the Messenger despite his passion and jealousy when she was asked in such an appealing manner O oh Zainab what do you know what have you seen Zainab bin Tujahash has reply was the epitome of piety Allahu Akbar O oh Messenger of Allah I guard my ears and I guard my eyes. By Allah, I do not know anything of her Aisha except good. And this is why Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha says, وَهِيَ الَّتِي كَانَتْ تُسَامِينِي عِنْدَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ فَعَصَمَهَ اللَّهُ بِوَرَعِهَا That she was the one who would rival me with the messenger before the messenger of Allah, yet Allah saved her through her fear and her taqwa. Again, there's the same lesson as what I mentioned about Umm Mistah radiyallahu anha earlier on. Justice. And this leads me to another verse of the Qur'an. Which is similar to the one I related earlier. believers, be upright for the sake of Allah and be witnesses of justice and do not ever let your enmity or your dislike of a people lead you to committing injustice. Be just. This is closer to taqwa and fear Allah. Verily, Allah is well aware of what you are doing. That's the concept of justice in Islam. And that's how we should be. Someone who doesn't abide by this, this is the characteristic of a believer. The, someone who doesn't abide by this they are guilty of a characteristic of hypocrisy. Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, rahmatullah alayhima, both relate hadith from Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Aas, radiyallahu anhuma, in which he says, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Arba'un man kunna fihi kana munafiqan khalisa, wa man kanat fihi khaslatun minhun, kanat fihi khaslatun minan nifaqi hatta yada'aha. Itha haddatha kathab, wa itha atumina khan, wa itha aahada ghadar, wa itha khasama fajar. There are four things which have found in a person, then he is a pure hypocrite. And if any one of these four things are found in him, then he has in him a trait of hypocrisy until he removes it. And the four things are, when he speaks, he lies. Number two, when he is entrusted with a trust, he is treacherous. Number three, when he makes a pledge or a promise, then he breaks that pledge and promise. And number four, these three are also contained in another narration of Abu Hurairah again related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim. Ayatul Munafiq Thalathun, Ida Haddatha Kadab, Wa Ida Wa'ada Akhlaf, Wa Ida Tumina Khan. That there are three signs of a hypocrite. When he speaks, he lies. When he makes a promise, he breaks that promise and fails to fulfill it. And when he is entrusted with a trust, he is treacherous. Both hadith are related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim. One from Abu Hurairah with three traits. One from Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As with four traits. So these three traits are the same. But what's the fourth trait, the additional one mentioned in the hadith of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As? It's this. وَإِذَا خَاصَمَ fajr. When he disputes, he sins. The meaning of that is, I'll be brief. 
that we all have disagreements, we all have our conflicts and disputes. It's, uh, it's inevitable, it's part of human nature. But when a, a mu'min, when a believer has a dispute, then he or she keeps that dispute within its bounds. When a munafiq or a person weak in their faith who has one of the traits of hypocrisy in them, when they have a dispute and when they fall into conflict with someone, they know no bounds in their hostility and enmity. They go beyond the bounds. And this is what Zainab bin Tajah avoided doing, which is whatever her personal rivalry with Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha, her disagreements with her and her conflict, she kept within its bounds. She did not take it one step further. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, on the other hand, the leader of the hypocrites, he bore such a grudge against the Prophet ﷺ simply because he felt aggrieved and usurped. He felt that he had his crown of monarchy stolen from him in Medina that he bore a personal eternal grudge against Prophet ﷺ. He left no stone unturned in trying to harm and defame the Prophet ﷺ and members of his family. And he could have kept his disagreement within its bounds. Like Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan was a leader of the Quraysh against the Muslims. And he did not embrace Islam until the eighth year of Hijrah. But when his daughter embraced Islam and she travelled to Abyssinia as part of the emigration with her husband, Ubaidullah ibn Jahsh, he laid Saddam. And then the Prophet ﷺ proposed to her from a distance, and Najashi Negus, the Abyssinian king, he actually proposed on the Prophet Sallallahu behalf, and he conducted the nikah. So her, her name was Ramla, the daughter of Abu Sufyan. Her kunya was Umm Habibah radiyallahu anha. So when Abu Sufyan, imagine, this is Abu Sufyan, he's in Mecca, he fought with the Prophet ﷺ in the Battle of Uhud. He led the Quraysh against him in the Battle of Uhud. And he continued to battle against him. He was a chieftain of the Quraysh. He was responsible for so much against the Muslims and even the Prophet ﷺ. When he was told that his daughter had married the Prophet ﷺ, you know what his reply was? His reply was, she has found herself a worthy husband. Despite his enmity and his opposition to the Messenger of Allah, he remained a noble man. And that nobility shone through even in opposition, even in enmity even over the Gulf of War. So, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, being a hypocrite, low in morals and character, stooping so low, that in his personal opposition to the Prophet ﷺ, he did not spare his wife and his noble family.
This is a sign of hypocrisy, that a person goes beyond the bounds in their conflict and in their dispute. I'll end with just one final thing, which is forgiveness. So much happened. There are two things. One, rumor-mongering, gossip, slander, backbiting. That is such a vast topic. I'll speak about it again on another occasion, devoting the whole dust to that. But until then, so a lot of this is, is about rumour-mongering and gossip and the harm it can do. Imagine one lie, idle gossip, rumours can be so damaging that this almost led to two tribes fighting and resurrecting their buried battle in the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in his noble presence. They almost came to blows. All because of the result of one hypocrite's room mongering. That's the damage it can do. I'll speak about that on another occasion. But the one final thing is forgiveness. Prophet ﷺ, although he stood up and said, Who will excuse me, i.e., if I seek to retaliate against Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, whose hurt has reached me even in my family? And they reassured him that they would take care of the business. They would take care of things. And they would all excuse him if he chose to retaliate. Did he retaliate? No. He did not do anything. In fact, years later, when Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul died, his son, who was a sincere believer, who was also called Abdullah, came to the Prophet and said to him, O Messenger of Allah, my father. There are different narrations. One was that he even approached him on his deathbed. And Abdullah ibn, sorry, that, uh, when he approached Prophet وسلم, he said to him, O Messenger of Allah, give me your shirt. Give me your shirt so that I can enshroud my father therein. So the Prophet وسلم, took off his noble shirt and gave it to him. And one of the reasons he gave him his shirt is that in one of the battles, the Prophet uncle Abbas, who was still with the pagans in the Battle of Badr, he was taken prisoner. So he was tall. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was tall. So Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib, the Prophet's uncle, after the dust of the battle had uh, settled, he was left without an upper garment. So the Prophet ﷺ said, who will give him a garment? So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, being tall, just like Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib, he took off his garment and shirt and gave it to Abbas. It's said that seven years later, when, seven or ten, eight years later, when... Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul's son approached him. The Prophet never forgot that act of kindness on the part of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul to his uncle. Allah Akbar. And he took off his shirt. Despite everything that Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul had done, he took off his shirt and gave it to his son, saying, Enshroud your father in this. Allah Akbar. <coughs> And he requested him to come. So the Prophet then went.
And according to the second narration, he took off his shirt again, another one, and gave it to someone to put over Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salam. And according to one narration, he actually bent over him, cradled him in his arms, and placed his saliva on him. And he prayed for him, and he stood over the grave in order to perform salah. Umar ibn al-Khattab said to him, O Messenger of Allah, how can you pray over him? How can you seek forgiveness for him? Prophet said, I will pray for him as long as Allah does not forbid me to do so. And Allah has given me a choice. For Allah has said, That seek forgiveness for them, or do not seek forgiveness for them. Seek forgiveness for them 70 times. Allah will never forgive them. So Umar, as long as Allah has given me a choice, I will exercise that choice and I will seek forgiveness for them for more than 70 times. Allah Akbar. Imagine, he had done so much. And yet, this is how the Messenger of Allah treated him even in his death. And this is why his family were all sincere believers. His sons and his daughter. Daughters. The daughters and the sons of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul were sincere believers, and according to the narration, even his wife. And the final lesson of forgiveness we learn is that of Abu Bakr as Siddiq. Look at what he had done for Mistah, his cousin brother. Abu Bakr and mother, and Mistah and mother were both sisters. He was a muhajir, an emigrant from Mecca, but he was poor. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq would spend on him. He would provide his maintenance, his nafaqah, his upkeep. He would give him not only spending money, but he was entirely dependent on Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. There was no welfare at that time. Welfare was what one's relatives or uh, other noble people provided. And Abu Bakr as-Siddiq was the sole provider for Mistah. And yet what happened? Mistah made the mistake of saying whatever he said and repeating the rumor about his cousin brother's daughter. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, when he learned of this, of course he was angry, he was hurt. What did he say? He said, by Allah. He felt that this is Mistah. Of all people, he should know better. He is my cousin brother. This is his niece that he is speaking of. Furthermore, he is dependent on me. I maintain him. I provide his upkeep. I provide his expenses. I'm his sole provider. He is totally dependent on me. Is this how he repays my kindness? By abusing my daughter? By repeating these sordid allegations about my daughter. If he has done so, then by Allah, I will never spend a dirham on him again. Ever. So he withdrew all his support and expenditure and maintenance. After this, after the verses of the Quran were revealed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, 
ولا يأتل أول الفضل منكم مساعة أن يؤتوا أول القربى والمساكين والمهاجرين في سبيل الله وليعفوا وليسفحوا ألا تحبون أن يغفر الله لكم والله غفور رحيم Let not those of bounty sorry, Let not those of grace and of wealth amongst you Swear that they will not give to their to the relatives and to the emigrants and to the poor and to the emigrants in the way of Allah rather they should forgive and overlook an excuse do you not wish that Allah forgives you your sins and verily Allah is all forgiving all merciful when Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu heard these verses he was a man who couldn't control his tears as Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha says, in the days of illness when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was ill and he was unable to lead salah, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Muru Aba Bakr fal yusalli bin nas. Instruct Abu Bakr radiyallahu anha, instruct Abu Bakr that he should lead people in prayer. Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha <laughs> did not wish her father to lead the prayer. And she says, وَكَانَ رَجُلًا بَكَّاءً He was a man who would excessively weep. And there's a reason why she didn't want him, very sharp, why she didn't want him to lead the prayer. So she told Hafsa radiallahu anha, tell the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that your father will lead. So Hafsa radiallahu anha, she, she was often outdone by Aisha radiallahu anha. So she said, oh messenger of Allah, shall we tell Umar, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, sternly said, muru Aba Bakr fal yusalli bin nas, instruct Abu Bakr that he should lead the people in prayer. And then when they persisted with Umar radiallahu name, he said, Antunna sawahibu Yusuf, that indeed you are most assuredly like the women of Yusuf alayhi salam, meaning persistently trying to get him to agree to something. So, tell Abu Bakr. Now the reason Umar mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha, very intelligent, she didn't want her father to lead the prayer is because that was the place and the position of the Prophet If the Prophet was too weak and too ill to come and lead prayer, the, the thinking and the feelings of the Sahaba was such that anyone who stood in his place whilst leading the prayer Whilst the Prophet was unable to do so, they would augur ill from him. They would augur ill. They would see this as bad luck because of Abu Bakr. They would see this as an ill omen because of Abu Bakr. And they would always associate the illness of the Prophet and his inability to lead prayer and the prayer of Abu Bakr in the illness and the incapacitated state of the Prophet They would always link this with Abu Bakr. And there would be that reservation. It's a very deep, far-reaching thought. So in order to avoid all of this, she wanted her father to lead the Muslims in prayer in good circumstances, not in these dire circumstances. So she tried to deflect it from her father. So in any case, 
Abu Bakr was a man who would excessively weep. Whenever he would, earlier on, we learned that she went to visit her parents. When she went to visit her parents, she went inside. And when she was lying down, she spoke to her mother. Sorry, she was speaking to her mother. And she said, oh, mother. When her mother confirmed to her, she said, has the Prophet heard? She said, yes. Has my father heard? She said, yes. She fell down unconscious. That's all she was concerned about. She wasn't concerned about what other people thought or said. She only cared for what Allah and his messenger thought and her parents thought. And indeed, that's how we should be. The concern of Allah and his messenger and those who are responsible for us. If we worry about everybody else, but Allah and his messenger, but our loved ones, our parents, these people matter to us more than anyone else. And that's exactly what Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha did. Concerned only with Allah, she said, Oh mother, has the Prophet sallallahu heard? Has my father heard? Yes. She knew that her mother had heard. She fell down unconscious. When she awoke, and then she began weeping and sobbing. Oh, she says, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, my father was above the house reciting Qur'an. In calamity, the dhikr of Allah. In calamity, the remembrance of Allah. In calamity, the recitation of the Qur'an. So when he heard her sobbing, he called out to her mother, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, and said, what is it with her? Why is she sobbing and weeping? The mother said, because of word has reached her what people are saying about her. When Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu heard that, he said, tell her to go back to the house of the Messenger of Allah. And he began weeping again. He was a man who wept excessively. So when he heard this verse of the Holy Quran, that let not those of grace and wealth amongst you swear that they will not spend and give to the relatives and the poor and the emigrants in the way of Allah, rather they should forgive, overlook and excuse do you not wish that Allah forgives you your sins? When Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu heard this verse, instantly he burst out crying. And he said, Bala, Of course, how I wish that Allah forgives me my sins. And then he said, I now swear in the name of Allah. I retract my former oath. And I now swear in the name of Allah that never will I again withhold any dirham which I used to spend on Mr. before. And he completely forgave him, restored him to grace and favor, restored every dirham and penny that he would spend on him in a, in a moment. And yet look at what Mr. had done to him. He had been dependent on him, reliant on him. He had been his sole provider and he was his cousin brother. And yet... He spoke of his daughter in that manner, and that's how he repaid his favor and kindness. He was severely wronged, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, yet despite that wrongdoing, look at how he forgive, forgave and forgot, in the hope that Allah will forgive him his sins. We need to be more tolerant and forgiving, patient and understanding. We harbor hate and receive with anger over petty things, damaging ourselves more in the process than the victim of our rage and seething anger. 
These are just some of the lessons that we can learn. There's so much more, but I will end with this. Here we conclude. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who follow in the footsteps of the noble messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and who adopt his beautiful example and that of his noble companions. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulih, nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfirukum kutu. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alkotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.